stationary. Y'all know I love to take notes. I love to write. I love to write on paper. I love to write notebooks. Matt, what'd you get me for Christmas this year? I got you notebooks and pens and organizers. Correct. I love it. Uh, And I find that it genuinely helps me remember things better as opposed to typing them or like putting them on a, like a text file or whatever, actually writing something down physically helps me a lot. It helps me organize my thoughts. It helps me get my work done. And ever since I got my new uh, iPad and I got the Apple Pencil with it, I have been doing that on there, and that's great. The only problem I've had with it, it doesn't quite feel like writing on paper, which is a feeling I like. We have the solution to that problem. That's right. Paper-like. As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a screen protector for your iPad. It uses a proprietary technology called nanodots. With those nanodots, you feel the natural resistance of paper on your iPad screen. It is a paper-like feeling on your iPad. So if you're drawing, if you're taking notes, if you're using your iPad like you would a notebook, here's the way for it to really feel natural. And Chris, I know you love that. You you have an iPad, you got a paper-like and I'm sure it's, it feels just right for you. It does. It feels great to use. Also, Matt, you know I'm very particular about paper. I have yes. specific brands of notebooks that I will and will not use. And paper, like, feels good on the iPad. Uh, they also make accessories for the pencil to make the pencil a little more comfortable to hold. They make uh, accessories to help you clean the iPad as well. They've got it all. The ability to handwrite notes in a digital form is great to begin with, but getting that extra tactile feeling that makes me happy while I do it, (laughs) that gives me that little dopamine, that little serotonin burst that I like to have, is fantastic. The latest version of the Paperlike is manufactured in Switzerland using high-quality plastic foils designed for maximum picture clarity. You're not going to lose any of the definition of your iPad screen if you put a paper-like on there. And these foils are developed exclusively for paper-like products. It also always comes in a set of two, so you have a spare. Look, we know a lot of artists listen to this show. If you're an artist and you're looking for a way to make drawing on your iPad feel a little bit better, this is how you do it. So, to pick up your paper-like, head over to paperlike.com Ajax, click Buy Paper-like, and select your iPad size. From now, right now, until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost for every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. So if you're ready to do more with your iPad, head over to paperlike.com Ajax to get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Comics Catch Up. This is a sub-show. Spin spin off show, Matt. What is this? 
I would what call, call it a, this. I would call it a spinoff, sure. A, a, a spinoff program of the Every Story Ever show, which is itself a spinoff of War Rocket Ajax. And it is the show where Matt and I, uh, you just heard him, that's Mr. Matt Wilson, where we catch up on comics that we maybe missed out on, maybe fell off of, that you, the listener, think we should read. And Matt, I have some news. I would love to hear this news. Matt, there's a uh, there's a catch-up out there that's not authorized. What? Yeah. A wild catch-up. What? A wild, covert action team centered here ultra premium yes exactly that that is exactly what i was trying to say matt it's and i know it's shocking but we've got matt we have to use our phones and drinking hard liquor in order to solve this problem maybe we'll have flashbacks to history ooh did you do you think maybe history was not the way you remember it because technology. What if technology, but gross? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What if? What if superheroes, but cuss? What if superheroes, but shoot? Ooh. What if superheroes, but cuss and shoot and blood? <laughs> <laughs> what if superheroes, but fuck? Mm, that's the way to, that's the way to do it, Matt. I can't top that one. We're reading uh The Wild Storm number 1 through 12. That's right. I don't know about you, Matt, but uh I feel like I have kind of a Matt Wilson opinion of this book. I I'm hesitant to ask what that means, but uh, I will ask what that means. It means that the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this isn't Stormwatch. I had kind of the opposite reaction. Really? I had the th- the feeling of, this is kind of too much Stormwatch. Ooh, interesting. Because my whole thing is, I, I'll, I'll say it right now, I'll, I'll lead off this way, because I think if I start this way, I will come out of this being a little more complimentary. I didn't particularly enjoy this. I found it boring. And keep in mind that you and I are reading it whilst social distancing. So the alternative yes. to reading this was doing nothing, which well, means no, it, it is more boring than doing nothing. <laughs> it wasn't doing nothing. It no, was no. the alternative to reading this was playing a video game or watching a TV show, which I think is an apropos thing to ha- maybe have done instead of this, because I found this very similar to the pacing and storytelling style, not of other comic books, but of prestige television. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're correct. The, this was started as a 24 issue series. It was planned from the beginning as a 24 issue series. Not all things are planned as 24 issue series. Uh, X Men '92 was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's clearly one big long story. We're only doing the first 12 issues this episode, which means we're not going to be ranking it this episode. We're just going to be talking about the first half, and then we're going to do the second half next time. And then we'll rank it. Because uh, uh, quite a few people recommended The Wild Storm for us to read uh, as perhaps the more, most Warren Ellisy comic that exists, which so far, pretty accurate. Yeah, they ain't kidding. It, all of the boxes of Warren Ellis are ticked in this. 
But I think on the basis of it being planned to have that many issues, and they couldn't change it because they had 24 on the covers of the issues. What a way to prevent early cancellation. Uh, to, it, to like have a list of all 24 issues on the cover and and have like a, a red marker over which issue this is. Matt, it uh it has been done before. There has been there have been series that had uh X issue limited series on the cover that did not finish. I believe Sonic Disruptors uh is one of the one of the few to have that dubious honor. Yeah, the this one didn't just say three of 24 on the cover, though, which could be changed. This had, like, as part of the design of the covers, those issue numbers, which I feel like may be somewhat smart on whoever made the decision to do that, uh, their part. But with it being 24 issues, with it clearly not be being broken up into arcs, like, I read this in the trade paperbacks. Same because it was just a little easier to digest that way. And there's some interesting back matter in these, uh, some, you know, designs by John Davis hunt, some page layouts and stuff like that. Kind of interesting stuff, but with it being 24 issues and clearly being one big long story, it feels very much like say a 12 episode, 13 episode season of a prestige television show. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of like a two issue block is one episode, you know? So it's like reading 12 episodes of a prestige television show where a lot of new characters are coming at you all the time. There's a lot of cross cutting between characters and scenes. There's several different, threads occurring in the story at the same time that you need to keep up with. And I think this might be the biggest detriment of the book. Things get repeated constantly. Yes. Now, reading it month to month, that's probably helpful. Reading it in trade paperback form, you find out about Angie saving the CEO founder of Halo probably a dozen times in the course of reading these first 12 issues. <laughs> it is something that is told and retold and mentioned and re-mentioned over and over again because different characters are talking about it all the time. Which, you know, fine, but wh- why do we need to be reminded of it so much? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like I, I feel like I also chose to read it in paperback because I actually have uh, all of the issues and the paperbacks uh, digitally. Which it's been a while since we said it, but I, I and I'm, I believe you do too, Matt. Like we still get all of the DC books. Uh, we do through Comicsology. We do. We get so, review copies of all the DC books. Shockingly, give, especially given my statements in the past, but thank you to uh, DC comics for those review copies. Um, I figured it would read better in paperback, just like not having the, not even having like the breaks between that you would get with the issues, even if you were reading them all digitally, which is functionally the same thing. 
a lot of Warinella stuff does. You know, like a lot of Warinella stuff is written with that format in mind. Which certainly is, something like a Transmetropolitan yes. reads reads better, I think, in trade form than yeah. in single issues. Yeah. I think a lot of, you know, modern Warinella stuff does, which is surprising. It's not surprising, but it's interesting to me because I do consider Ellis to be among the best at crafting a single issue story. Uh, like, I think Fell still holds up really well as these tight little single issue stories that I like quite a bit. Uh, but the function of reading it all in uh, paperback was that I wished even the covers weren't there because you saying that it's like, it's not like 12 issues. What we read, it's like six episodes. Yeah. Uh, that is very accurate because uh, every odd numbered issue just stops just kind of st- like it gets to, like it gets to a point where there's like an act break, but it just kind of stops. Yeah. I, again, I feel like it's very much paced like a television show, and it has. I think it has a lot of the positives that come with that kind of prestige TV pacing. Uh, I, I I'm interested in certain storylines. I'm less interested in others. I think it's kind of cool to get like certain reveals well into the story you know it's not all front-loaded like we get the whole story of jacob Marlowe, whose name i had to look up we'll get to that in a second <laughs> jacob Marlowe and and the rest of the halo team spoiler alert being aliens we find that out well into these 12 issues i think that happens in what issue eight or nine mm-hmm. and and a lot of the backstory kind of gets filled in you, as you go. I don't think you get what the initialism IO stands for until the second issue. Yeah. That is kind of interesting to me. I, that has its pluses and minuses. But I also think, by virtue of, one, this trying to be a book about all of the Wildstorm universe, kind of attempting to relaunch it all in one book, and following that prestige tv pacing you get a lot of characters thrown at you you get a lot of characters thrown at you and some of them look very similar to each other Mm -hmm. and it is very hard for me a person who has a really hard time remembering names to keep these characters straight like somebody will show up and i'll be like wait who is that Mm mm-hmm and that is also a thing that happens to me with prestige TV shows, where like if I'm watching Game of Thrones, I'll be like, who's that again? <laughs> because I haven't seen this character in three episodes, you know? And that happens here. Like, the, the very first scene of the first issue uh, involves a, another character whose name I'm going to have to remind myself of. because Well, here's who's in the first issue. It's, uh, it's Zealot. Angie Spica. There's Zealot. Yeah, Zealot who has three names in this. Yeah, Zealot is in like the first three pages of issue one, right? <laughs> then she's gone for like five issues. Yeah, which sucks because she is the most interesting and Warren Ellisius character in the book. True. <laughs> I mean, Angie is clearly supposed to be the reader identification character, which I think is interesting. Like making engineer that character is interesting. Mm-hmm. But like the the I, I noticed how the Wildstorm characters who I'm most familiar with 
which is the authority characters for the most part, don't appear until like close to the end of what we read. Like Jack Hawksmore appears in like issue eleven. Yeah, I do and, like Jack Hawksmore getting a code name for the first time. Yeah, um, and and like the Doctor doesn't really appear until pretty late. And I uh, get it. I understand because you know it would be even more confusing if all of these characters showed up in issue one. But it, I think, it contributes to both positive and positive and negative. This feeling like prestige television. Well, Matt, that brings me to a question that I have for you. Okay. Prior to reading the Wild Storm, which do you think people voted for this just because they know that's how we like to say it? <laughs> I think. It does have. I think it was more about what they believed our reaction to the book would be, or or a curiosity as to our reaction to the book, more so than an adoration for it. I, I didn't see a lot of oh, read the Wildstorm. I loved it. Although I'm sure people did. I'm sure a lot of people did. It was more read the Wildstorm. It's so Warren Ellisy. I want to hear what you boys have to say. Uh, how familiar were you with the Wildstorm universe? At large, prior to this, I know you read the Authority. Yeah, and I read. I, I've, and you read Ellis's Stormwatch, right? Some of it. I've I've read. Essentially, I, I got most into Wildstorm in that period of, like the early two thousands, mm-hmm. when it kind of became a different thing. When yeah, it kind of became sure. a, a more indie feeling superhero universe because you know the original wildstorm under the image banner was jim lee's thing Mm -hmm. and those were some extremely jim lee comics yes they were and i haven't read a ton of those i haven't read a ton of like the original wildcats for example but matt they have invisible powers (laughs) i have read most almost every issue of the authority that exists, including that halted Grant Morrison run on the authority. Two issues, I think. One two, issue or two issues. Two or three, I think. There were at least two. I know that much. I, I've read almost every issue of the authority that exists. I've read uh, Wildcats 3.0, which is why I'm kind of familiar with the Halo Jacob Marlowe stuff, stuff in this. Because mm-hmm. all of that Halo corporate stuff comes from Wildcats 3.0. Uh. And and I've read bits and bobs here and there of other Wildstorm stuff, but a lot of these characters are not familiar enough to me for me to like when they show up to be like, oh, that guy, oh, he's here now. I know some of the main players. I know like you know Henry Bendix, but the weatherman, the weatherman. But I don't know all of these characters super duper well. I have read, uh, pretty. I've read Wildstorm at pretty much every point of its existence. Yeah, like I was just at the right age to follow Jim Lee to Image uh, with Wildcats, which is not a good book. But as you recall, I'm mega into Gen thirteen, or right. was at the ages of thirteen and fourteen. Uh, but also. Alan Moore's Wildcats was a, a big one for me. The Ellis Stormwatch, which I think is among his his best work, uh, particularly in like a superhero adjacent 
uh, arena. I know that you're a big uh, transmet guy. Yeah, I, I do uh, enjoy that book. And, and then, like you said, in the sort of mid two thousands, circa like Sleeper, yeah, when it became the prestige television superhero universe, pretty much. Like Sleeper it, was literally done as seasons, even. It was. It it was kind of the introduction of comics as TV shows. That sort of notion. And I like those Wildstorm books from that era a a good bit. Um, You know, the authority doesn't exactly hold up as well as you would want it to. I'd say the Ellis authority holds up a lot better than the Miller authority. (laughs) Yeah, I think you would probably be correct on that front, my man. (laughs) Uh, Because the the Miller authority tried to be political. Uh, but in that South Park, everybody's dumb kind of way, uh-huh. uh, which again I don't think holds up super great. It's a shame because Frank Whiteley draws that. So. He does, and it's the art's still real good. But the, the, you know, I've read a ton of the Authority. I think Wildcats 3.0. We we didn't rank it super high on every story ever, but I think Wildcats 3.0 has some really cool ideas, and it's like as Joe Casey as a book can be. <laughs> Boy, Joe Casey, I started reading Jesus Freak the other day, uh, and Joe Joe Casey, bless him, he is always very much himself. I I feel like Joe there are like different values of Joe Casey, or there are different. There are kind of two Joe Caseys, the one who who does the kind of like I'm going to write this book this superhero thing and it's going to be a superhero thing. And then the Joe Casey who does a comic that's just called sex. (laughs) That's what I like about Joe Casey. He has no concept of subtlety. (laughs) It's true. And he doesn't need money. So he just does whatever money. He does whatever comic he feels like. Yeah. That dude's got TV money. That dude's got men of action money. He's got Ben 10 money. Here's what's weird. Joe Kelly still out there. Joe Casey still out there. I haven't seen hide nor hair of Steven Siegel for years. Steven Siegel just went to live on an island. Yeah, that's that's the dude who did what I would do if I had been ten money, which is <laughs> which is goodbye, everyone. Yeah, I, I never need to write another comic ever again. Uh, I guess point being, I felt like this uh, story didn't necessarily require. But I felt like it was geared towards people who would be like, ooh, Henry Bendix. Ooh, John Lynch. I know these guys. Yeah, D- John Lynch is an interesting character in this because he's mentioned a lot and then finally shows up halfway through. Yeah, in number 12. They make you wait 12 issues for the reveal of John Lynch, the Gen 13 dad. <laughs> yeah, even though he's talked – again, he's talked about a lot. Yeah. Uh, tonally, this book is weird. Let's talk about tone a little bit. Because this story is essentially about huge military-esque government question mark organizations that hate each other. They're like supra-governmental, I guess. They're meta-governmental, I think would be a, a good way to put it. So there's IO, which we find out again in issue two, is International Operations, which is the organization that John Lynch used to run. Yeah, which is that that is 
uh, true to original Wildstorm universe flavor. Yeah. Uh, then there's Skywatch, which is the organization run by Henry Bendix, which they're in space. IO's on Earth. Skywatch is in space. So they kind of have like, I would describe it as an FBI CIA sort of working relationship. Yes, where on the, F- the larger scale. The FBI stays to domestic issues. CIA covers the whole world. They don't really get involved with each other. But in this particular case, IO and Skywatch are like somehow like constantly on the verge of being at war with each other. They just don't like each other. And then as a third party, you have Halo, which has its own agenda and seems to be working toward causing that war between Skywatch and IO to happen. Yeah, they make phones because this is a comic war in all this room. Well, it, interestingly, that's the big change from Halo from Wildcats 3.0, because in Wildcats 3.0, they were a technology company there too. But the whole concept of Wildcats 3.0 is that Jacob Marlowe created a battery that doesn't die. It's like a permanently working battery that lasts forever. Mm-hmm. So he he upended like the entire energy industry. There's nothing as drastic as that here, but Jacob Marlowe is still viewed as this, you know, revolutionary figure to the point where Io wants to kill him. He's going to destabilize everything by introducing uh, technology, and just so that we know that there is like a gray area to all of this, there is a point where uh, Michael Cray, you know, Michael Cray, Michael Cray, the Io assassin. Yeah. who is sent to kill Jacob Marlowe at the beginning of the book, c- causing the inciting incident. Was he Wetworks Deathblow? He was Deathblow. He was Deathblow, yeah. Why don't they call him Deathblow in this book? Warren Ellis, I know you're not a coward. Call him Deathblow. I, I have a feeling it might happen in the next 12 issues. A big thing in this book, though, is like who gets called by their codenames and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think the term weatherman gets used once. We hear about Angie being an engineer, but she's never called the engineer. Zealot? That's her code name. That's her, like, in the field government operative code name. Zealot is Zealot from page one. Yeah. Grifter is referred to as a grifter, but not a capital G grifter, which we do know the distinction because there is mixed case lettering, because what is this, 2002? Yeah. Voodoo is called Voodoo. Because I think she's famous? It's her stage name, yeah. Yeah. Void is never called Void. Michael Cray is never called Deathblow. Jenny Sparks is still Jenny Sparks. Yeah. But I don't really... the Doctor is called the Doctor. The Doctor's called the Doctor. But I don't really get Jenny Sparks here yet. Like, I I don't quite get what her role is. I don't know what her role is, but I do think she has what are maybe the most interesting powers... Of the bunch. Yeah, I find it very interesting that Jenny Sparks is still Jenny Sparks in this. Because the whole idea of Jenny Sparks, and who would know this better than Warren Ellis? (laughs) Warren Ellis, the creator of Jenny Sparks? Or co-creator, I guess. Who wrote this entire arc for her. Um, Jenny Sparks died at the end of the 20th century because she was a representation of the 20th century. That's why her name is Jenny Sparks, because of electricity. Yeah. She was Jenny Quantum. A new Jenny Spark or a new version of her was born to 
to be to exist in the 21st century, that was Jenny Quantum. Right, and we found out that the the 19th century Jenny was Jenny Steam. Jenny Steam, I think, I think. Yeah. or Jenny Iron, something like that. Uh, but, the but she's there's a difference now, which is that she's no longer tied. She's no longer a century baby, which is what planetary was all about. Right. She's tied to what technology is at any given time, which I think is really interesting because we see her walking through. Oh, Matt, you're not going to believe this. You know what we see her walking through? What? Phones. Phones. More than yeah. phones. She walks through phones. There's a That is in the moment of what you might call the highest satire in the book, which I kind of wish there was more of. Uh, that's when she walks through... Uh, a Commander Steel comic where he's in an iron lung, which is a rough chuckle. Uh, and then she uh, gets into an episode of Martian Manhunter, which is about uh, like a like a Martian cougar. She's like an alien cougar. Yeah, which is a fun, which is a very Warren Ellis joke. Yeah, they're like uh, tiny, tiny bits of next wave in this where it does like satirical things or where people curse and like the the censored cursing is what is it all x's it's all x's where? which i hated <laughs> because that is like what you type in a script and then you replace them with the 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 skull and crossbones like in next wave and but but i guess only marvel has the skull and crossbones font I guess. So they couldn't do that in this book. So it's just like it's just like they they're saying, "Oh man, I hate this." I guess that's yeah. how you pronounce like four X's. In a row. Yeah, it's a what a king nightmare. Yeah, hated it, loathed it. My, my biggest problem with this, Matt, and I, I I mentioned this back at the beginning. I really really love Stormwatch. Yeah, uh, like the the sort of turn of the century. I guess pre-turn of the century, late 90s, pre-authority Stormwatch. I think it's some of his best work. Uh, this isn't just, like, not that. But I think there is the case to be made that it is... It's very much not that. But because Ellis, in particular, has been involved with these characters for over 20 years at this point, in one form or another... It feels like a Warren Ellis cover band, you know? Because it's got, like, all the sort of, like, superhero-y, extra-governmental stuff. And it's got the same characters, but it also has, like, phones. At, like, to the point of, and look, I know phones are important, and, and Warren Ellis is correct about that. But, like, it definitely feels like it is someone doing a Warren Ellis impression. And the weird thing is it is Warren Ellis doing a Warren Ellis impression to me. What it reads more to me like is, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think that's a valid reading of this. What it reads more to me like is like ultimate wild, wild storm where I, th- I think one of the biggest failings of ultimate Marvel was they didn't change things enough. And it was only the character who was totally different from Peter Parker, Miles Morales, that survived the Ultimate Universe, right? Mm-hmm. This is all the same Wildstorm characters. 
in pretty much the same roles, doing pretty much the same things. Just the ingredients are moved around a little bit. Yeah. It's it's a chalupa instead of a Taco Bell quesadilla. <laughs> same stuff, and it tastes basically the same, just in a slightly different configuration. And stretched out. So, but that's also what Wildstorm of the mid-2000s was. They also did an ultimating, ultimating of the Wildstorm universe then. Because the Wildstorm universe, when it started in the 90s at Image, was like this like big high-action superhero stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then in the mid-2000s, it becomes this slower-paced, there's still action books, but there's a lot more kind of like dialogue and talking about what's happening and sort of larger conflicts afoot in all these books. And and there's kind of more, I don't know, thematic meaning to everything that's happening. And that is also what I feel like is happening here. This is 12 issues of characters preparing for a war. And there are shooty bits here and there. Like, Michael Cray has to shoot some guys on a a cat team, on a razor cat team. Yeah, the razor. He he shoots. No, he doesn't shoot the guys on the razor cat. He shoots the guys on the warblade. Oh, that's right, the warblade. <laughs> was it, what was Warblade's real name? It was stupid. I seem to remember. Uh, you would know better. Reno. Than me. I think his name was Reno. Okay. But it, it it doesn't seem too drastically different from the Wildstorm comics I remember best. Reno Bryce. Reno Bryce, there you go. Yeah. Does does that make sense? I, I feel like to be like, okay, we're, we're going to do some bold new storytelling with Wildstorm. It, it doesn't feel that bold or new to me. It's an interesting story, and... I think perhaps I like it more than you do. I think it sounds like you do. It certainly sounds like you do. And I fully agree with you. Like it's, it's so close to what it is not that it is very noticeable. And it invites the comparison in a way that I don't think is good for it. Yeah. I I think that, to me, the biggest failing of the book is its introduction of characters in a way that might work somewhat in a TV show, but that I don't think work great in a comic. I think in a comic, you at least need to put some text in the panel that says who these characters are. The, The most egregious example of it that I can think of is in issue seven. With the introduction of the Doctor, yeah, who just shows up. We see her in a park. She's talking to some guy named Bram, and she talks about taking these like Easter egg-shaped drugs. That oh, completely... that's, not the, that's not the Doctor. Then who is that? <laughs> that's just a random girl who was at the Doctor's. So she got the drugs from the Doctor. She got the drugs from, yeah, that, the other character is the Doctor. Well, Which they I think look, is the you are illustrating your point right well, now. Well, here's the thing: they look super similar. It just looks like that girl got a haircut. <laughs> yeah, they have the same hair color. Basically, look the same. Like, 
I don't want to say John Davis Hunt is not. Well, they do appear together on panel, so that's a clue. But also, all the Doctor stuff is supposed to be trippy. So, like the idea of like her talking to herself wouldn't be that out of the question. Mm-hmm. But like John Davis Hunt, it's I don't dislike his art. I actually quite like the art. And I think uh, his I think art is very consistent. It's very consistent, and I, I think he has a problem in that it is occasionally difficult to tell characters apart, which sounds like a very big deal, and it's not a small deal. Uh, but I do think he he has solid acting, I think. If the characters were like 10% more distinct, the acting would be like like a good like a good 0.7 on the Kevin Maguire scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what this book proves in some ways. Kevin Maguire is a 1.0, Mike Sikowski's a 0.0 <laughs> on that scale. Well, the, well, you know, it's a truism of many comics artists that their characters can end up looking rather similar to each other. Mm -hmm. And that is why superheroes have costumes. (laughs) Yeah, it it really doesn't help that Angie, the engineer, Void, and Jenny Sparks could be the same character wearing different costumes. Yep. At any given time. Kanisha also falls into that category. She wears glasses, Matt. Not in completely, completely different glasses. <laughs> okay. Uh, but they're yeah, all, we, but they're all brunette women with pretty much the same skin tone. Yeah, and they have different faces. And John Davis Hunt draws their faces distinctly, but it is it is a little difficult to keep them all straight. Just like Miss Pennington is another redheaded woman in this. I thought that the lady who took the drugs was Miss Pennington. They look a lot alike. Yeah. And I think that's that's partially a problem with John Davis Hunt. It's also, I think, an inherent problem of reintroducing the entire Wildstorm universe in... Everybody's there by, like, number six. So in six issues... With a a handful of exceptions. Like I said, Jack Hawksmore doesn't show up until, I think, issue eight. And... Yeah, there are a couple of the characters who don't show up till late, but yeah, yeah, pretty much. But we've we've essentially got all of Stormwatch, all of Wildcats, some members of the Authority, and I guess that's it. I guess I guess nobody from Gen Thirteen has shown up yet because John Lynch just shows up at the end. But yeah. oh, and all of their villains. So we get like I- Ivana Bayul, who also looks a lot like Ivana looks. Could be in the lineup with uh, Angie and Void and and Jenny Sparks. Yeah, the engineer has or uh, the doctor has a head tattoo, so we got that going <laughs> for us at least. The, the doctor has a distinctive hair haircut, at least. Yeah, uh, I can't even remember who's the who's the woman who's sort of like one of the bosses at IO with the short haircut. With the short haircut, uh, that is. 
oh, I, I can't remember her name. Cause I think she is a, is she, I think she's a, uh, like gender swapped version of, uh, battalion. Okay. Right. Or maybe not. Maybe I am t- pr- imagining things in this book. Uh, she works for Miles Craven. I know that character's name. <laughs> but, like, I, I think we're making our point that the characters are hard to keep straight. At first, I thought she was Voodoo. Yeah, oh, yeah, because she's she, Jackie King, right? Yeah, so she yeah. looks like she looks like Voodoo with a, just a short hair. It's, it's again, I, I feel like we're, it seems like we're, like, ragging on John Davis Hunt hard here, who I think does a, a very good job with the storytelling here. His characters act well. But his action is good. I think, by and large, Don, John Davis Hunt's art is good here. He just has a very unenviable job of keeping these characters who are not dressed in superhero costumes, who are just wearing like suits or you know sweatshirts and pants, distinct from each other. And that's super hard to do. Yeah. Which also, I, Matt, I'll tell you this. Uh, this. This is maybe the dumbest thing about this entire comic book. Grifter. Cole Cash. Car- like, he carries his mask. Like, you know, you know Grifter? You know what Grifter looks like? Yeah. yeah. He carries that around in his pocket. So that when the action starts, he can put it on while being shot at. And the only time he does this in the entire book, somebody goes, well, we got some footage of him before he got that mask on. Well, yeah. then why, why do you even have him have the mask? Does he, does he know that he used to be grifter in another comic book and has to kind of sort of wear a costume? Yeah. I mean, look, this is not going to be an Excalibur situation where we don't read the rest. I, I, I'm interested to read the next 12 issues. Certainly. Undoubtedly. But I hope the next 12 issues are worth some of the failings of this book. Yeah. I, I, I am get not it. stoked about it. I, it. What makes it even more like a prestige television show, I think is the fact that these are su- these are effectively superheroes who don't do superhero things. They don't wear superhero costumes. It feels like a pitch for a TV show. Yeah, but it feels like a pitch for a TV show from before we had Batrock the Leaper show up in a movie looking like Batrock the Leaper and before we had like a Watchmen TV show that everybody really liked where Dr. Manhattan looked like Dr. Manhattan has dick out. Yeah, or a Flash show that is about comics-ass Flash. Yeah, a Flash show where he does, in fact, fight a telepathic talking super gorilla. That, yeah, that has Gorilla Grodd in it. Like, yeah. we can do comic booky stuff on TV. It's weird that this book seems to remove all the comic bookiness from Wildstorm. Yeah, and I think maybe that's what's... Maybe that's what's disappointing me, and maybe that's why I keep comparing it to Stormwatch. Because for all that it's like a prototype authority, Storm Stormwatch has costumes and code names. There's yeah. a dude named Battalion in it. Doing this this way, in the same way that like you call it the the ultimate Wildstorm, it feels like it's from the mid two thousands. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. That's that's part of why I was like, this isn't all that different from that Wildstorm. Yeah. Because in very many ways, it feels like that Wildstorm to me. It would feel, I think, more contemporary if everything in this book was happening exactly as it happened, but, like, Zealot was walking around wearing, like, a metal bright red bikini with, like, war paint on. <laughs> And if if the Warblade Squadron showed up and they were wearing like weird, like looking like the Constrictor from Marvel Comics, yeah. Or if, well, it seems like the the trend nowadays is not to do everything in one big series like this is doing. And maybe that was the pitch here: is we're going to do something different. We're going to do all of the Wildstorm universe in one big series. But the, the trend now is to introduce stuff with a bunch of new series or a bunch of mini-series and then bring them together later. You know, uh, like all the metal books with all the different Batman. Or when DC tried to do the new, like it's a new line of heroes, which kind of came and went. But talk about, talk about, talk about Damage? It had damage. It had, uh, oh, I'm already for Silencer. It did have Silencer. She was in South Carolina. She was in South Carolina. Um, was that the, called Bloodlines or am I imagining this? It wasn't called Bloodlines. It was called okay. like, it was, I think it was just called like the new, like New DC or something like that. I can't remember what it was called, but it, there's no stopping the, us now. The Terrifics were part of that. Mm, that's that's right, uh, and and all of those were introduced in new series. There was a Bloodlines book, though. Yeah, there was a Bloodlines book. That that line wasn't called Bloodlines, though. Yeah, but they did decide what can we bring back that people are going to love. That's right, Bloodlines. <laughs> I, I, again, I'm I'm interested to see what happens in the last twelve issues. I'm interested in the story. Yeah. My issue I, is more with the way it's being told than anything else. I didn't hate it, but I was bored. And you texted me today and you're like, hey, I finished up reading it. And I was literally in the middle of reading. I'm about like four issues deep in the Mark Grunewald Captain America run. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I, I just started right up with Captain America 305. Matt, Steve Rogers is about to get a job working for Marvel Comics. Oh, hell. Uh, and I was like, damn, I got to stop reading this Mark Grunewald Captain America run. <laughs> Damn. A little mad. They just called it the New Age of Heroes, by the way. Mm, that's right. That that line was called the New Age of Heroes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's pretty much for our discussion of the Wildstorm numbers 1 through 12. Well, Matt, we I have some read... data for you. All right, hit me with some data. Uh, as you know, I've been expanding the Every Story Ever list with my expanded data. And so today, I thought, since I've done a lot of the, at the top, I've done a lot at the bottom, I wanted to find out what the exact midpoint of the list is. Mm-hmm. And I think this illustrates what a top-heavy list this is. Because uh, we have uh, 1,065 comics on the list, which means that the, ag- the absolute midpoint is number 533. Okay. Uh and that is visiting hours, 
by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends from Marvel 2 and 1 number 96, the sequel to Marvel 2 and 1 annual number 7, which is good. Yeah. And I, I say that because what I have read of the Wild Storm so far, it ain't better than that. This is not a top half of the list situation, Matt. Yeah, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens in the last 12 issues. It could rebound in the it last could, 12 issues. It could be it could rebound. I you know, I again, this is clearly one big 24 issue story and you know, one great reveal, one cool twist, one moment that brings all these disparate story threads together could really boost this in in our minds. So we'll just have to see how we feel about issues 13 through 24 next month in April on Comics Catch-Up. Yeah. Uh, until then, do we do anything at the end of the show, Matt? Well, we could do some some quick uh, rundown stuff. Uh, help support this show, if you can, at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Ajax keeps these monthly specials going, keep the monthly Every Story Ever specials going, our regular Ajax episode episodes, as well as Movie Fighters and Snack Situation. And you can find us at uh, our websites. I'm at mattdwilson.net. That's where you can find links to all my stuff. Chris, where can people find your stuff? Everybody can find my stuff by going to the-isb.com. Uh, we'll probably mention this on the main show when it comes up, but uh, a lot of conventions have been canceled of late, uh, which means a lot of people who are making their money at conventions are going to be in some dire straits. So if you have the ability, uh, maybe go find someone that you were looking forward to seeing at a con and uh, maybe like throw them a, a, a Kofi or a Patreon or something. Or uh, buy a print from them. What, buy a print. Yeah, whatever you can do. I, I know that there are a handful of sort of virtual digital conventions happening over the next little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can seek those out and recommend some specific ones on the regular Ajax show. But certainly be aware of the artists and, and comic creators out there who are definitely going to be losing some of their their income that they rely on over the next month or two. Yeah, uh, so that's going to be it for us. We will be back soon with another episode of Ajax, and before you know it, we'll be back with the second half of what's the name of this comic come out? The Wild Storm. Good catching up, everybody. Mm-hmm.